Once again, welcome to episode 3117 of the Survival Podcast. Today it's Friday, so we have an episode of Out Back with Jack. My disclaimer that I have to put on all these dadgone videos now uh, is if you are listening to this video and you've commented on it or you comment on the future or you come back to it and you see anything in the comments below on specifically YouTube that says something like hit me up on WhatsApp or any of that bullshit, I don't care if it has my logo. I don't care if it has my name. It's not me. I don't do that, and I never do that. And scammers are doing that left and right on all kinds of influencer channels right now, and it's happened to me left and right. I take them down as quick as I can, uh, but there's a limit to what I can do. I've turned on enhanced uh, everything on uh, on YouTube as far as uh, spam filtering. The next step would be to not allow comments, and I don't want to do that. So... YouTube could give us tools to deal with this, but they won't because they don't really give a shit if you get scammed by somebody. But just know I will never, ever, ever, never infinity tell you about a special way to contact me in the comments of any of my videos anywhere on planet Earth. If you want to contact me, the best way to do that is either through my actual known social media accounts or the best way is through email with TSPC in the subject line to let me know it has something to do with the show. If I don't respond to you there, I'm sorry, but that is the way to get a hold of me. I'll never give you. I don't even use WhatsApp. I think it's a piece of crap, just to be blunt. All right, what are we going to talk about today, this Friday? We're starting a little bit late for an Outback with Jack, noon Central Standard Time. That's because my grandkids are not here the last couple of days for homeschool. They're with their other grandparents during the summer vacation, and it has me acting like it's a Saturday morning every morning when I get up and make coffee and hang out with the dogs. But we are going to talk about something that is probably why most of you that showed up early to the live stream are here for. I'm going to tell you how I would kill every single person on your prepper compound, homestead compound, whatever the hell you want to call it, if I was a bad guy, when I say that, I don't mean me alone. I mean me with a group because I'm not going to travel alone that way. And I'm going to do this for a reason that we'll get to when we talk about it. I'm not doing it so that you can say, well, this is how I can go take people out because it's a bad idea for the bad guy too. Okay. But it, I'm, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. I'm also going to talk about question I was asked is the great reset actually turning into the, the the great awakening, did they overplay their hands or something to that effect? Or is that just opium? We're going to talk about that for a little bit today. I'm going to tell you what the three biggest threats, in my opinion, to our way of life right now are. And it's really more threat categories than individual threats. And then we're going to make a shift, talk about some practical things. I'm going to answer a question about using old pool liners as pond liners for backyard ponds for aquaculture. I am going to talk about a couple stories out of the scientific community that are not, you know, the BS with the, the clot shot and that. Actually, kind of interesting ones, but I, I have some skepticism on both of them um, from a practicality standpoint. Uh, there's an article going around. A bunch of y'all sent it to me. Have humans actually lost over half of our gut biome over time? I'll tell you my flaw, the, the flaw I see in the study, but why I actually think it's probably right, or at least partially right anyway, and what we can do about it. Um, 
can we actually grow plants in the dark? We can, but should we? Is it too much magic? Is, is, uh, I can't remember the, the author of that, uh, Kunstler, I think was his last name. I've had him on the show before. He's some pretty interesting books, but, uh, his book called Too Much Magic. In other words, too much belief and faith in technology to save us. Um, and then we're going to talk about a meat based diet at the end here. And I'm going to give you five problems it solves and it's not going to be about your health. Even though I think it, that's, that's a byproduct or the way we'll look at it. So we got a bunch to do. Before we do, I do want to uh, remind you about our sponsor of the day today. It's permies.com and Paul Wheaton, who's pretty much our perpetual Friday sponsor. I just want you all to realize how much is available at permies when it comes to like providing for yourself, which is what we really teach here. And I think you'll have even more reason to want to do it today. Uh, of course, everybody knows permies.com has forums. But it also has podcasts and a bunch of other stuff, including reviews, ways you can take PDC. Uh, but it has a ton of articles and podcasts with a ton of information on how you can take better care of yourself through permaculture. Paul Wheaton is a personal friend. We disagree at times, and he's the perfect kind of friend, in my opinion, Because if you have an intelligent friend, you guys are going to disagree. And we're able to disagree with each other and still get along. Uh, neither one of us gets butt hurt or whatever, even when we both take very firm positions. But if you want to know a lot about permaculture, you want to dig more in to the work that Paul Wheaton's doing over at permies.com. With that, let's, uh, let's dig into the, the, the main lead story today. The, the reason that you're probably here either live or listening to it later, if it's Memorex, if you're old enough to remember that. Um, the, the, here's where this came from. I've been putting out short videos lately, whether they're segments from the show or individual subjects that I just rattle off 10, 15 minutes on. And they've been more in the, I guess you would call the mainstream prepper space, more about things like defense of your property and things like that. And I know if I do that consistently that I can grow this audience more quickly. So you might wonder, why don't I do it? Well, it's this kind of thing that it attracts is the main reason I don't, because I don't really enjoy dealing with people who are at the ledge and ready to jump off into the world of complete oblivion in their minds. I don't enjoy, basically, people that I, I just listen to their comments, and I think this is a person that, pleasures themselves while reading a prepper porn novel with Red Dawn playing in the background. But these people, when they show up and you're talking about basics of homestead defense like we did yesterday, always tell you what you need to do, because they know, to have a completely defensible position. And then they tell you about how they've got their guns and their ham radio so they can talk to their friends around the world and how they're going to have this, this complete defensible homestead. And I listen to this, and I just think, me and three of my buddies with a modicum of basic military tactics and training could kill every single person on your property really, really easily. And I want to be clear when I'm talking about this, what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, I'm a badass. I'm not saying that. In fact, that's actually the problem that the person in this scenario has. I'm not a badass. I have a very rudimentary level of military training. I was in the Army many, many years ago for a few years, and uh, 
I, I'm a, I'm a good shot. I'm not uh, a guy that's competing in the Olympics as a, a long range marksman or anything like that. I didn't go to sniper school. Um, but when I, I listen to these people, and when I say listen, more, more so it's usually reading them because I don't generally watch a lot of content or listen to a lot of content from the people that actually build this up. But here's, and understand there's more than one way this could happen, right? And every single situation, and this is where I think people get stuck in their head. They have this idea of the way it would happen. So I'm prepared for that way. Well, but what I'm about to tell you, the way we're going to start out, is going to change the way it's going to happen. I'm just going to give you one way that it would flow through. So to be in this scenario, which is albeit highly unlikely, and we'll come back to why that's important at the end here, we have to be in a position where the rule of law is gone. It's gone. It's over. It's done. There is, it is, you know, Patriots surviving the, the coming collapse by James Wesley Rawls or some shit like that. There is no functioning government. There is no law enforcement. People are all in for themselves. Uh, everything has collapsed. That's the only way you're going to get the type of scenario that these people are, are conjuring up in their minds. And so in that scenario, the first thing I want to know before I even decide to kill everybody at your compound is, is it worth it? And I want to know what is the best way to do it. So I'm going to start with surveillance. And that surveillance is going to take a hell of a lot longer than every other piece of it. And I'm going to start with surveillance probably using an asset that is very non-threatening in their appearance. That just looks like some vagabond refugee. What are you going to do? Shoot every refugee that happens by your compound? You're supposed to be the good guys. And I'm going to put something into this right now from... Science fiction, uh, also um, spoof movie. Do you guys remember in Spaceballs when Dark Helmet is fighting with, uh, what's his name, Lone Star? And he offers to shake his hand, and Dark Helmet just yanks the ring off his hand, the, the ring of the Schwartz, and throws it down the shaft. And what does he say to him? Now you will learn that evil will always win because good is dumb. And as stupid as that is, there's actually something to it when it comes to the type of violence we're talking about. So I'm going to begin to gather intelligence on your compound, and I'm looking for your weaknesses, your schedule of operations, how you handle things, and do you have enough to make it worth my time? I'm going to risk my blood and some of my treasure to take yours. Do you have enough? Or you, If you're all starving to death and you don't have jack shit, we're going to find somebody else. So that would actually be a defensive strategy to make it look like you're all starving to death, right? Like you don't have enough to make it worth taking. Um, but assuming that you do, then I'm going to start figuring out, well, how many people are there? What are your routines? And all of these people that are talking, I know that they're not sitting there on these compounds with like 60 hardened soldiers guarding them. Uh, they have to take care of their own needs. So there's going to be a time of the day that people, you know, go out and actually see to the needs of, because now you got to eat, right? So whether it's hunting, gathering, or growing your own food, you can't be 100% dedicated to defense at all times. And I'm simply going to determine the time of day or night based on your routines when the most of you are most exposed at the exact same time. And then I and my teams are going to then recon the points that we would want to be at to kill you. And we're going to do that based on your schedule. 
to where it's best for us to get in to do that recon. And we're going to determine if there's any kind of traps or surveillance or anything in those locations. We're going to have a plausible out because good will always lose because it's dumb. And uh, we're going to figure out where we can actually set up. And then we're going to execute that. We're going to go into that place. We'll wait till an approved time and situation. And then we're going to shoot as many of you as possible, as quickly as possible, with absolutely no warning. Move in, do a little force-on-force mop-up, and take all your shit. That may not be the way that it plays out, but it actually is the way that it would play out most of the time. Most of these people talking all kinds of smack, they have four to six people maximum. And, you know, people will point to something like how long the the Ruby Ridge standoff lasted, and that's because the government just didn't go in and, and, and kill everybody right away. I say I'm not defending the government in Ruby Ridge in any way, shape, or form. I think that people should be in prison still for what happened there. Okay? I'm just saying if it had been six bandits instead of FBI trying for surveillance and capture, they would have just killed everybody. And I have a question up for those that are listening to the audio. And it says, who do you think has the advantage in an attack on a physical location, the attacker or the defenders, for those that aren't in the the video one way or another. And I think there's a position that a lot of people have in their head that the defender has the advantage because you can set up and be prepared. But the attacker has the advantage in that they choose the time of the attack, the speed of the attack, the method of the attack. They choose when. And you have no way of really altering that. You're a stationary target. And you know, you can, you can believe otherwise because of what the TV told you or a book told you. Or more often, it's often people with some level of military background that think about the hardened military installations that we have deployed around the world that are constantly attacking yet beat off the attack. Okay. You know what they have that you don't? Professional soldiers. Now, It's really important when I say that for people that want to beat their chest and talk about how smart they are and what kind of training they have and all this other nonsense that led us to have to talk about this today to say, well, I'm a professional soldier, like because they think that I'm talking about trainings and training and tactics and knowing what to do and being proficient. That's not what I mean. I'm a professional podcaster, not because I'm good, but because I make my living doing it. You know that unless I go on vacation and I tell you in advance that every day there's going to be a podcast, I take my time and I apply it to podcasting. I used to be a professional salesman. I don't do that anymore. At one time, I was a professional box packer in a warehouse. It was a shitty time in my life, but it paid the bills. And so I dedicated my time to that. When I say they have professional soldiers, I mean they have people whose job is to defend the location at all times. And they rotate in shifts and they're there to do that purpose. You're not going to have that on your freaking prepper compound. Period. I'm sorry, you're not. You are not going to have enough manpower, and if you did, you're not going to have enough supply to feed the manpower without the manpower investing its energy in other things like growing and procuring more food. And again, most of these people, you're talking four to six people maximum. They have a plan. Their brother-in-law is going to come over, and he was a SEAL or some stupid shit like that. And your, your, your Navy SEAL freaking brother-in-law, if he really is, to tell you really quick that what I'm telling you is the truth. So you are going to have to go about your daily business 
And when you're going about your daily business, which your attacker will know what it is, when it is, and how it is, that's when they're going to attack you. Now, here's the here's the real big thing in this. I'm, I, I'm probably not going to get it in the live chat. There might be one, you know, fly in the ointment or something like that. But most of y'all that show for the lives, you've been around a while. You know that I'm never absolutist in a scenario like this. This is just one way this scenario com- would come out. But you're going to get people responding to this video down the road, especially if I break it out as a standalone. And they're going to say, we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and we're going to do this other thing. And they may even lay out a way that you could put, let's say, a 100 people into a planned defensive scenario and harden it incredibly well. Night vision surveillance, trip alarms, LPOP. I know everything you're going to say. Okay, either you're going to do that now while the resources, money, and material to set it up are available, or you're never going to do it. You're not going to do it on the fly like, oh, shit, it really went down. Now let's go do this, because you're not going to have the resources and the manpower available to do it then. Okay, and this is this is only for, like, roving bandits or some other bullshit that one of these authors has written into a book for you. If it's the United States military they're gonna, and, and they actually see you as a threat, they're going to drop a bomb or three on you and eliminate your grid square and you're gone. Okay, that's that's what you're gonna get. That's exact. I mean, that would be the entire thing. They'll call a fire mission in from from 12 miles away with some artillery and lay waste every square inch of your existence if you're actually a problem for it. So we're just talking roving bandits today because I've got to get off this one and move on to the the more productive stuff that we're going to talk about today. But you can do it. Do you know what it's going to cost? A few million dollars. That's what it's going to cost. A couple million dollars, and you're going to have to have professional defenders. You're going to have to have a certain number of people armed and ready to go at all times, 24-7. Somebody's going to have in not standing out at the gate like this to get shot in the head, okay? You, they're going to have to be in hardened, defensible positions at all times. Covering you while you work, i.e. you need professional soldiers. And you're still at a disadvantage. And then this is my question to you. As unlikely as this is to actually occur, if you have the money and the resources, is this the way you want to deploy that money and resources and then hope you're right? And basically you need a religious cult to pull anything close to this off whether it's an actual religious cult that believes in an actual deity or some group of people that are so in belief that this terrible world is coming that their religious-like conviction to it will hold them together for long enough for it to last for any length of time. This is reality. This, And I hope what it does for you is refocus you on the idea that what you need to do is be as best prepared to defend yourself as you can for the type of problems we might have. Because what's a lot more likely is a partial collapse, and you have vagrants and bandits and things like that. This idea that you're going to have this full force-on-force military tactical engagement, it's fantasy land, and what people do with it is they use it as an excuse to invest a massive amount of money and things that don't really produce anything for them, and they're not going to address the biggest problems that we're going to have 
going forward into our most likely future. So I'll leave it there. And I, I, I hope that if you tuned in mainly for, for this, that you got what you wanted out of it, or you, at least you think it was, uh, it was, it was valuable to you in some way. But what I'll finish with on this, I'm glad I didn't leave this out because it's a big point I wanted to make with it. There was a group, two guys that robbed a shitload of money in the 1980s from armored car carriers. In fact, what the armored car industry does today as to how they defend things when they're out and about picking up and delivering cash is highly based on what happened back at this time. And all these guys did, they were armed with nothing but shotguns. They would wait until uh, they would surveil. They would know a route. They would never be armed, never be ready, just random people while they were co collecting their information. They would know Bill's going to show up to pick up the money from this place on this day. And as soon as the back of the car would open and everybody was exposed in one way or another, they walked in and just killed everybody. They didn't hold them up. They didn't say hand it over. They just killed everybody instantly, grabbed the money, and took off. And I think they pulled off like six heists like that before there was enough adaptation to slow them down enough to the next time they tried to do it, they actually ended up getting caught. And there had, and, it, and the industry was slow to adapt and it took time and there were actually some copycats in this before they made enough changes. That's freaking reality in the type of scenarios that some of you guys are laying out. They don't come in, whatever that means. They don't ride in on motorcycles with hats on like freaking road warrior. They don't rove around in roving gangs, whatever kind of nonsense that is. The sophisticated attacker is going to evaluate your position, determine what they want from it. And if they want it from you, they're just going to kill you and take it from a distance. And again, you can harden up to where you're like a minor military, uh, you know, FOB. But what's the investment? You don't have a, a society to tax farm for it. Moving on. Um, I had an interesting question this week. I think it's a hell of a lot more interesting than the, uh, the topic we just had. And it's about this whole thing with the, the, the great reset and all the crap that they pulled during the scandemic and, and what have you. Um, they said, do you think we're wrong? I mean, you're putting me in there when you say we, so I ain't sure that we are what you say we are. But he said, do, do you think that maybe what we, because he said, what I'm actually seeing is more people wake up to the evil that is government and to the real problems in the world than I've ever seen in my life. And so instead of a great reset, could we be on the cusp of a great awakening? Yes and no. That's how I would answer that question in the most honest way that I can. The problem that we have is not how many people are waking up. It's how many people just don't care. And it's a question of how bad does it have to get before they care? So all the people you're talking about, because the ones that were already awake, I don't think you're putting in this group, right? We've had people that are awake to these problems for as long as I've been doing this podcast, and that's 14 years. So, and we have people awake way before then, way before then. I would say I was awake to all this shit before I was doing the podcast. 
I mean, it wasn't like I woke up one day and started in the podcast. It was I was awake and saw the problems and finally thought maybe this is a way that I can help people. But this this group, it looks like there's a lot of them because they're more vocal and they're reaching out. And a lot of them are probably people that maybe you knew and they didn't want to hear it. And now they're interested because of what happened with the COVIDs and what have you. But what is their percentage of the population? And I think it's still really, really small. And I think most people just don't care. And I think there's a lot of people that are aware, and they still don't care. And the reality of governmental oppression, and that doesn't matter whether it's from the alphabet agencies, the executive branch, the legislative branch, courts, whatever, or if it's the technocracy and oligarchy leveraging their fascist relationship with the government to enforce it from the outside, like silencing you on social media would be an example of that. Right? There's, there's never been, for instance, a monopoly in the private sector that wasn't inva- made possible by government. Every monopoly, true monopoly we have ever had in society was made possible with government's complicity, right? Government's money, often government's endorsement, and often government's funding. So there's just a tremendous number of people that are aware of this, but they don't really care enough to do anything about it. They don't care enough to even say, you know what? Maybe we should at least get an extra deep freezer, throw it in our freaking garage and fill it up with food. Do I think that makes you 100% prepared? No, but it makes you a lot better off than the average person. They ain't willing to do it. And it's the same person that will go out and say, well, I can't afford it, and they'll spend $500 this month on Starbucks coffee and going out to eat and drinking booze in the bar. And I don't actually have a problem with you doing any of that as long as you're not telling me you don't have money, to be clear. And as that advances, it doesn't go backwards hardly ever, and when it does, it's never easy. You'll notice that back in 2001, we had this thing that just became collectively known as 9-11. We have to do this because of 9-11. And the government took all sorts of new powers, and they're not directly in your face, but not one of them went away. Bin Laden is dead, or at least they say he is. Our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, thank God, after 20 years, we had guys fighting the wars who were in diapers when their fathers were fighting these wars. Not so long ago. Seriously. And that's over. But the federal government still has changed, for instance, the classification of your relationship with a bank where you rent a box to put shit into, into something that's regulated as a financial relationship as it does regulate, let's say, your bank account or your investment account. Do you think that's ever going away? The surveillance state has been expanded into every aspect of our lives, and people know about it, thanks to people like Edward Snowden. But most people just don't really care. So I don't, I don't know, I don't know that enough people will wake up. I do think more people have woken up. And I do think that 
If you're strategically doing this as the people in power that want more and more control at all times, that the, the hand was overplayed with COVID. It, it, it certainly jarred people into reality, but most of the people that jarred into reality, I kind of feel like those were people that if we go back to the matrix analogy, they were in the pod, but they were having the dream where they were talking to the people that were in the real world already. And they, we're potentially going to get red-pilled anyway, and they just got it a little bit faster. I don't know how many people that were more worried about just staying asleep. I don't know how many of those that really woke up. Maybe a few. But what's actually scared the shit out of me is the number of people that have become aware of these problems and still don't care. Like when you talk to them about it, they acknowledge that you're right and their response is, but what are you going to do? And it's like, well, there's things you could do in your own circle of control, like at least make sure that you can feed your family, think differently about your spending habits, the leverage of your debt. Like you could do that. You could, you could find a better way to make a living, you could get your kids out of the corrupt public school system that we both agree sucks instead of making, like you can make this list of things they could do and that, nope, not interested in it. And the number of people that still believe in this wokeism narrative nonsense is staggering. So I have no idea if we're really having a great awakening or not. Or I'm going to tell you what, I think we're having a great awakening. Just how big is it before we call it great? When you say it, you would think that means like the majority of people are waking up. They're not. But 5% of people waking up, I would call that a great awakening. Where that momentum goes next, who knows? I'm going to tell you, I think our three biggest threats, and like I said, these are the classification of threats, not individual threats. And I think this is what you need to be thinking about in your planning Versus, I'm going to set up Claymore mines around my prepper compound. Okay? Right? Um, I think they're economic, regulatory, and supply side. And you take well, government. Government plays in all of those. So government's the overriding macro as we sub-break it down. So let's talk about them. I think the economic threat we have is twofold. And whether it Venn diagrams into regulatory, I'm not sure. But I think that, you know, I asked a question last week and people all tried to get around answering it the way that it was asked. You know, I would end the Fed. Well, that wasn't part of the question, right? I put you in charge of the United States economy right now. As everything is, how would you fix it? And no one had a good answer. Do you know why? Because there's not one. Within the existing apparatus, you have certain things you can do. There's certain monetary policies you can and cannot enact. If I make you into Gary Gensler, I make you into, uh, what's her name, uh, that, that got everything wrong on inflation. I can't think of her, her name just went out of my brain right now. If I make you into any of these people, if I give you all their jobs, pulling the plug on the Federal Reserve is not an option. If I make you Janet Yellen, that's what I was trying to think of. If I make you Janet Yellen, you, you're not going to be able to just do that. If it was established by an act of Congress, what do you need to get rid of it? 
So there's only a limited amount of tools available. So I think we have a major economic threat. We have so over-leveraged the entire monetary system. that This whole idea, when they start telling you, well, we have a good chance of a soft landing. Now, I said this before, but how do you feel about that when your pilot's like, yeah, the air, the, the, the masks are coming down, the cabin's depressurized, the plane sounds like, Rrr! he said, don't worry, we got a good chance of a soft landing. Head between your knees and kiss your ass goodbye, folks. When they're acknowledging best case scenario is soft landing, you, you're crashing. That's what that means. That means we're crashing. So we have a, a direct economic problem with inflation that's going to have a cascading effect across God. The, the next real big hit is pension funds, public and private, like making 2008 look like it was a day at Disneyland. Also with economics, though, we have, this is where I say a Venn diagram and a regulatory. If you're going to fix this, one of the things you're going to try is the establishment of the CBDC, which is the Central Bank Digital Currency, and now I can control what you can buy and where you can spend your money. Like, I can just say, Bill cannot spend his money on things other than this. And you say, I'll spend my damn money on anything I want. Well, for a, a CBDC, literally, it could be the case where I haven't pissed off the state as bad as Bill. That's unlikely. I probably won't be able to buy anything. But let's just say I'm random, Jack, before I did the podcast. And I've been a good boy. I walk into a store and put some goods on the thing and come up and scan my little QR code. And they say, Thank you, Mr. Spirico. And I take my shit and I leave. And Bill comes up. And, 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 and Bill comes up and he's like, yeah, I want to buy the same stuff that, that jerk just bought. And the guy says, okay. And he scans it and it says declined. He's not going to give you this stuff because he doesn't get the money. They can just say that you can't spend your money on certain things from your account. Or you can't spend your money until you do something else. That's what the CBDC does. It gives total economic control to the issuing authority, which would be the central bank, which is not the government. It is the Federal Reserve, which is a group of banks that have the power of the government without being the government, i.e. a fascist technocracy and oligarchy. Yay. So economics, I think we have a problem with if they don't do anything that tyrannical, you still have this massive economic problem going forward. The second one is regulatory. So we've reached a point where the the idea that we and that you know create an analogy between any entity and a living organism is is a completely valid one that's impossible to kill. And so what do all living organisms seek to do? Continue to exist. And they continue to exist by reproducing and having offspring. Well, the United States government can't reproduce the way that some rats can, even though we, we, that analogy is probably really good. The Congress to rats, I get it. So the way governments reproduce is they grow. They grow. And what is the purpose of being in government as a legislator? To pass legislation, more laws. Now, we already have so many laws in this country So you get, I have a 2,500 square foot house. God knows how many cubic yards of space there is. But I bet you could fill my entire house just with federal regulations and laws. And you would not be able to fit it all in here. 
If it was, you know, small print, single spacing, eight by 11 sheets of paper like this, I don't think you could fit all the federal laws in my home. So, but they're going to keep doing it and they're going to keep doing it and they're going to keep doing it and they're going to keep doing it. And so you have to ask yourself, what am I free to do without the interference of government in my life right now? Make a list. And those are the things that new regulations will affect. I don't care which team you play on, Democrat or Republican, or you're an LP party libertarian, or you're an anarchist like me. That's I don't give a shit about your agenda or your thoughts or your feelings. That's what government's going to do. You can put all the R's in charge, all the D's in charge. You get anybody in charge you want. That's what government's going to do. Because government is an entity that acts like a life form. So we've reached a point in society where they're in control of so much that literally to continue to exist, they have to, they have to continue to infringe on individual rights. And you're marrying that with a technology level that's never existed before. I'll put it to you this way. And this is the truth. Had Nazi Germany had access to the technology that's available to governments today, there probably wouldn't be a single living Jewish person on the planet. And I know some of you, the Holocaust never happened. Okay. To help you get your tiny, teeny brain around this, if the story were true then, then that would still play out. Or pick a government that you believe tried to kill a specific group of people and completely get rid of them, give them 2022's technology, and the place of power they had at the time, and that group would be gone. That's scary shit. And that's where our regulatory world is headed, headlong into. And the countries, well, you know, maybe China, maybe China, but we can nuke their asses, right? Look at what was done in Canada and Australia in the last couple of years, and New Zealand, too. Really think about it. Imagine right now, you're a refugee in sub-Saharan Africa. And you put in for refugee status somewhere, anywhere in any other country. And it's 2015. It's not 2022. There's not a global scamdemic going on. And you could end up like they put a bunch of shit in a wheel and they spin it and they pull a ball out. And that's the country you get to go to. We all know you're like... United States, man, United States. But your buddy, he gets United States. And what they do is they keep pulling balls out until something, they throw them all back in. So you're like, damn, I'm not getting the United States. Are you not thinking Canada, Australia, New Zealand, or somewhere in the EU? Maybe the UK. Now, again, I'm not talking about you, Bill, that lives in Oklahoma. I know you don't want to go to those places, maybe. But if you're a refugee in some part of the world, like there's your, you know, Western liberal democracy, the place that you're safe where your rights are recognized. And remember, the, the, the famous words that always happen before a thing happens here is that can't happen here. So we have a huge regulatory threat just because of the nature of government itself and supply side. That we are not even close to having this supply-side problem completely unwind. And we continue to have different things not available in different places. And a lot of the things that, okay, we can manufacture in the United States, the process to getting into production mode is four or five years, and we're not doing it. 
We're not doing it. Just silicon chips. We are building some new facilities, but they will not go online to like 2026, 2027 if nothing goes wrong. And we're not clearing any of the environmental hurdles to getting these things built. And the Supreme Court decision about coal-fired plants doesn't fix that problem. It might fix an energy problem to a degree, but it doesn't fix silicon chips, which are something, this is something I think people really don't understand. I think people think we make a factory, we start making silicon chips, and all the silicon chips come out are whatever we're trying to make. It's not how it works. Baking a silicon chip is like baking a cookie. So you try to make all the cookies, chocolate chip cookies, right? Chocolate chip pecan cookies have the same amount of pecans and chips in them and the same shape. And you do everything you can to do this best as you can. You have a little blobby maker that blobbies out your cookies and you put them in an oven and you bake them. Now imagine that a tiny fraction of a difference from one cookie to another took the cookie from being like an A grade to a B grade to a C grade to a D grade. That's how silicon works. They have to make all the chips, then they have to individually test them. And then certain things you want a certain chip to be able to do, if it doesn't have a certain grade, it's not capable of it. It's a complicated world. It's a, it's something that the average American has no idea. How many will admit in the live chat, you didn't know that until I told you right now, or if you did, you know it because I said it a few weeks ago. Right? I don't know how many will admit it. Most people don't know that. How many other things like that are there on the supply side of things? We still can't make a reasonable amount of antibiotics in this country without getting raw materials from either China or India. How stupid is that? How stupid is that? We have our our biggest global adversary is not Russia, folks. That's a Russia, 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 freaking Biden, right? Guys, second-level dementia at this point. The Chinese are our biggest threat in the world economically and militarily and strategically and could literally tomorrow go, no penicillin for you, no tetracycline for you, and a tremendous number of our other medications that we do rely on shut us off. Supply side is hard. You put all three of those together, that should give you the formula for what you need to do with your life. You get your ass healthy, you produce some of your own food, You build local economies, you get your kids out of the indoctrination centers, and you learn something new every day, and you don't waste one more freaking second of your dash in the world you're leaving to your kids. If you believe in voting, go vote. Go vote. Go vote your ass off. You get to do that, what, once every two years? You want to run for city council? Go do that. I don't give a shit. Go ahead. I will never, I will say I don't participate, and I don't believe it would be effective if I did, but I will never shit on anybody who tries it. Life is a teacher. The problem with life being a teacher, that's basically life teaching you is learning from experience. And I want you to think about this. This is the way learning from experience works. You get the test first and the lesson second. When you learn from someone that's been already there, when you study with someone who's been through the process, this is anything. You get the lesson And then you put it into practice and you get the test. When you say, I'm going to learn from experience, you get the test, and the test becomes the lesson. That's not always bad, but it is something to think about. Yeah, Adrian says no more fertilizers. 
Yeah, we already rely on Russia for urea. We make fertilizer and diesel exhaust fuel with it, or diesel exhaust fluid with it. We don't need the diesel exhaust fluid for a diesel engine to run, except we put a computer chip in the engine with the last remaining silicon that we had in abundance to tell the truck not to run if the fluid's not there, even though it doesn't need it because environment. But then we said the diesel exhaust fluid requires this urea shit, and it's so toxic we really don't want to make it in the United States. So we'll export our pollution and import our urea from Russia And now we can't do either one of these things well because we put sanctions on Russia that makes it harder for us to get the urea, and they're a little less incentivized to work with us and getting it to us because we're the ones trying to cause some problems. Yeah, supply-side issues are not going away, folks. So you need to take responsibility for how do I provide fertility in my backyard. We'll talk about more of that toward the end. Um, next, I had a question, just a practical question. Can I use a, po a pool liner? To make a pond. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. So the thing is, we're, and it's an old one, so I'm wondering where you're getting it from. So here's my issue with this to a, a couple different issues. Number one, the only time I ever pulled a pool liner out of a pool was when it had a hole in it that I was unable to find. So I've had two times with above-ground pools. We've always had above-ground pools because they're more affordable, and here I don't really have a choice. Um, putting a pool in here will cost me more for the hole than for the pool because of the rock issue and require dynamite problem. I'm not kidding. Um, you find a hole. You take a little piece of pool liner, an adhesive. You don't even have to drain the pool. You can glue it on and patch the liner if you can find it. We had a hole in our pool here a few years ago, and we eventually replaced the liner. Because we gave up trying to find the hole. And it was this constant seep. And it was making mud. And the ducks were making it nasty and mucky. And creating a disease environment and things like that. So um, generally speaking, if you have an old liner, there's a hole in it. Now, if you can find the hole, you can plug it. The next thing is I recommend when you're putting a pond and you put the best liner and you can get your hands on, which is 45 millimeter EDPM. I don't remember the thickness on pool liners, but it ain't that thick at all. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 20 or something. It's like the, the best pool liners they make. Next is the color. Like the reason that pond liners are black is it helps dissipate light within the water column, and it makes it less likely to have things like algae. doesn't mean you won't. It just... And it aesthetically looks better in a pond environment. Now, I think you would end up with a lot of uh, mitigation to that little pretty pebble-looking blue seahorse, whatever, pool liner. But I would take the approach of, if I'm going to use it for a pond, maybe you take it and you use it at half of its size and double layer it would be one way to mitigate that. Another that I think, would work really good in these situations is you should be putting a pond in the ground. Don't emulate me and go above ground with all your water features unless you're doing it because you have to. Your pond should be as low to grade as possible, even if you want it a little above grade. You know, we're talking six, eight inches above grade then for what, what have you. Um, just because everything else works easier if you do that and you have more stability of temperature and all. But if you're doing that in ground, And you don't want to spend the money on bentonite to fully seal with bentonite. 
your your issues with a pond getting holes in it usually you have some kind of slope and it's going to be the under like once you come off your sides right is where you're going to have your issues um with leaks and you could basically sprinkle bentonite onto your whole thing as part of your 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 surface prep before you laid it in and i know people why do you just seal with bentonite because again how much are you going to spend here and if you do that and have some clay content in your soil, even if you get a small seep, unless it's in an area where it's really an issue, it's probably going to self-heal. So that, and that, that's a, that's a technique you, you could do with ponds, even when you're lining them with a proper liner. I'll have to say, I've run lined ponds now. My oldest one's like eight years old with a 45 mil liner. I've never seen one leak yet. And mine are probably more likely to leak and cause a problem than one that's in the ground. So I think you can do it. And it depends on how big of a pond, what kind of investment we're here. We're talking like if you're building something like a tractor tire pond, which will be part of my course, how they've been building these in Australia and the UK for years. Sure, go ahead. They build those with freaking vapor barrier uh, plastic. They just put two or three layers of it in and use the, the tire to create the side stability. Like no big deal. And if it really, if it, if it fails, you just pump it out. Put in more liner and fill it back up. But if you're talking about a significant investment, I would look really, really hard at just spending the money and buying a proper liner. Next up, um, this is an interesting one. And when I read the, the headline, I thought that sounds like something that makes a lot of sense to me and, and, and is probably something we should talk about. Let me get this thing out of the way. Um, the headline is modern city dwellers have lost about half their gut microbes. This is comparing the genomes of intestinal bacteria and various primates and human populations it begins to pinpoint the possibility helpful microbes that have gone missing from our guts. Now, I'll tell you, I, I think there's something to this. And I think many of the uh, health problems that we have in America today could be because we don't have healthy gut biomes, and in some instances, maybe that certain things that have become critical to our immune defense systems over time have actually freaking just become extinct in the human gut. And if you think about the great conversation I had on Wednesday with Stephen um, about uh, Korean indigenous microorganism gardening, and creating these uh, these fungal and bacterial cultures and then applying them and having plant diseases go away, it certainly makes sense. My problem is what's on the screen right now, this group of, 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 of chimps. Um, I'm not anti-chimp, but I also don't think that we should be looking at the gut bacteria of a monkey and saying that is traditionally what the, the gut bacteria of humans would have been like. The way this was written, and it said city people, I thought what they might have done is gone into where, like, indigenous people still live on natural diets. And, uh, yeah, okay, people eat. This is one of these things. You can't help a person at this point. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. But modern city dwellers, you would think that what they would do then is they would go in and they would look at, well, what does a hunter-gatherer society in the Amazon have in their gut bio? 
And it also just that modern city dwellers have lost about half their gut microbes. Well, then you would think that people that live more like I do, you would go examine us or people that, you know, like at least I lived in the city for a period of my life. Maybe I lost it, never got it back. Who knows? But what about the person that grew up in a rural environment, in a homestead environment their whole life and never left? What is their gut? That's what I would actually have expected this to be compared to if it was going to be a legitimate comparison. That's, That's what I would have expected, and it's not. Now, I'll tell you why I believe it's straight out of the gate. If you live like an indigenous society lives, you're going to get most of your caloric intake from meat. Whether anybody will believe that or not, I don't give a shit. If you actually do what I did and you're going to go and actually study the people that still live this way and the historical means by which they lived, even the ones that ate a lot of vegetation, their caloric fuel that actually ran their body came from clubbing stuff, fishing for stuff, spearing stuff, stabbing stuff, and trapping stuff. And that's because when you go across the globe and you get your ass out of the tropics, that little band of the tropics, The further you move from there, the more that has to be the case because the food's not available without agriculture. But you're damn right that these people have all figured out, all. And if you look at the work of uh, Weston A. Price around the world, every indigenous society had something that was vegetative and fermented or animal-based and fermented, and we've lost that. There's your gut biome, at least part of it. At least part of it. The way we get born today, I'm not going to go into, but the way many children are born today actually changes their gut biome from birth because they're done through cesarean sections and things like that as well. Uh, that actually has an effect on the gut biome, whether, whether you know it or not, it does. Um, but yeah, they, and, and they also would have figured out that certain plants would be good as medicines. Or certain plants would be good as energy sources, things that like would have natural occurring caffeine that you would chew. Or if you look at the indigenous peoples of South America, the the, the, the leaf of the, the coca plant, the co- what they make cocaine from, they have a long history. They would chew that for pain relief and energy so they could work more. And they didn't have any of the problems with people shoving cocaine up their nose. So we know that man throughout the world always picked up stuff and very carefully at first watched animals and stuck in their mouth and said, does this do anything good? If you're doing that, even if you're getting almost no calories from it, what you're getting are naturally occurring yeasts and bacterias that are on the leaf of that. So when you make sauerkraut, assuming you picked the cabbage from your garden, you don't have to inoculate lactobacillus into the sauerkraut, right? You take cabbage, you put salt on it, create the right brine, it pulls the existing water out of the cabbage, and lo and behold, the lactobacillus ferment begins. What does that mean? That means that the lactobacillus were on the leaves already. When you look at eating different fruits and things in small amounts, because that's what was available, you can take grapes and make wine without pitching yeast. Do you know why? Because there's naturally occurring yeasts and bacterium, etc., on the freaking grape skin. Do you think back in, you know, biblical times when wine was a big deal, that when you went and made some freaking wine at your vineyard, you went out and picked up some Y yeast, you know, 
or something like that to pitch. Now, man figured out that when you had a good batch, you pitched back the, 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 the sediment and you got the same effect. Maybe they didn't know why, but they figured that out. But in the end, how did it start out? All bread was sourdough at one time, folks. So the fact that we have basically sanitized everything, irradiated everything, and changed our diet so radically from traditional uh, diets, I think is a, is why this is probably true. And I think that, you know, one, one of the best, one of the best things we can do for ourselves is begin to graze from nature again. So long as the place we're doing it, we know it's safe to do. I eat food out of my garden all the time without washing it, cooking it, whatever. As long as I didn't see a dog take a leak on it or something or a duck crap on it. And since I, put everything in these high-raised beds and some of it's in my aviary. If I'm out there and I that's a good-looking pepper, there's enough of them in the house, I'm hungry, I eat a pepper like an apple. I eat tomatoes off the vine. When the blackberries are around for a couple weeks, I eat some berries, you know, like pull them off the vine. We didn't pick any berries and bring them in the house this year. We had a very small yield, so we just ate them as they came. I eat goji berries off of the uh, vine, etc. Like, What do you think's on all that food? A lot of microorganisms that's contributing to your gut flora. So I think that's one of the things we can do. But I'm not convinced that we're really getting a good look at what our biome of our gut should look like by looking at the biome of wild living chimpanzees and gorillas and stuff like that. Because... I just don't think it's it's a really good analog because there's a lot of things that those guys eat, fibrous things and stuff like that. You can't eat. You're not going to eat. And, and and the diet of a chimp in, in nature is one that a human could not live on. I'm sorry. It is. All right. Next up, this is my too much magic segment for today that I was talking about. So it's a scientific breakthrough. I got this from probably more of y'all than I did the last story. Let's plants grow in the darkness with no sunlight. And uh, here's what they said. I want to find. Yeah, okay, there it is right there. The researchers published their findings in a journal, Nature Food, to replace normal means of photosynthesis. They used a two-step electrocolytic process. This converted electricity, carbon dioxide, and water into acetate. Acetate is the primary component used in vinegar. It can also be used by plants in dark environments to grow. The process was so effective, researchers believe it could be more efficient than using sunlight for some foods. Listen to this propeller head genius stuff that comes next. They say that you'd need to combine the system with solar panels to create a self-sustainable power system. However, once done, the system would allow the plants to grow without sunlight more effectively than ever before. I think they don't mean more effectively than ever before if we compared it to when they had sunlight. I think they mean more effectively without sunlight than ever before. In other words, it would be more effective to grow without sunlight than it is to grow without sunlight right now, which is where they all die and don't produce anything. So we're going to put up solar panels to collect solar energy to make electricity to grow a plant, which is by its own nature is a highly inefficient process. And most of the, 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 the photovoltaic energy of the sun is lost in the conversion process. We have, we have gotten as efficient as we're capable of so far, and it, it ain't that efficient. If we could efficiently 
capture the energy that the sun drops on the planet Earth just on land masses. In one day, we could plan the power of the planet for years, and we don't know how to do it. So we're going to take this inefficient mechanism of catching light and turning it into electricity to replace the natural process that allows plants to go in the light. No, okay. Well, that makes perfect sense. Now, there is a use for this. Space. Colonizing other planets, etc. Well, if we're colonizing another planet, the sun hits it. Well, how far away is it? How much sun? And in many of these instances, these other planets they plan on colonizing, at least initially, you're going to have people living subterranean most of the time, moon specifically due to radiation. You can only be out on the surface for so long. That's why every, everything on the moon right now, guys, is about the South Pole. I won't get into why today, but you can check it out. It's actually really kind of interesting how the South Pole would be the place that everything initially would be for permanent moon bases. So I think there's that. If you were trying to survive a nuclear holocaust and you had nuclear power, not solar power, you could live in a cave, I guess. I don't know. But if you had nuclear power, you could run lights. So I don't know. Is it, it you know, would you have production facilities to keep making, you know, grow lights and would you just be better off using this maybe i think there's ways this might have some meaningful contribution to the edges of human exploration but the idea that we're going to feed the planet using this incredibly complex energy inefficient scenario versus like grow the plant where the light is it just seems again like too much magic to me uh absolutely all right Next up, I want to talk a little bit about a meat-based diet since we already had somebody here tell us the problem with us is we eat too much meat. Okay, I'm not even going to go there today. I want to talk about five problems that a meat-based diet solves to at least a great deal. Makes way better than they are because solves me. When you say solves, a person's like, if they can find one tiny flaw that's not perfect, You have failed as though your obligation is to be able to theoretically solve every single pro same shit with anarchy, right? I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be better than we are. So the health thing I'll leave out today, but I'll say it anyway, because here you go. This is what it looks like when you switch to a meat-based diet. And go find a video of me from like 2015 and look at this one, and this is what happens when you switch to a meat-based diet. But first of all, I am going to talk about healthy, but from a different standpoint. Do you know what I always hear from people about eating healthier? I don't have enough time. I, it takes time to cook healthy meals. It takes me less time to take a ribeye. People are like, what are you going to eat with your ribeye? Salt and pepper, right? Maybe some herbs. Throw a rub on it. Heat up a pan. Maybe if I think it needs a little bit of fat to get started out and get that good crust on it, throw a little bit of fat in there, probably beef tallow. Get that pan hot, throw that in there, and cook both sides of it until it's done to my level of doneness. Leave my wife's in there a little bit longer. Take them out and eat them. I'm done eating. You're still making your chicken nuggets and a rot of fries that you're waiting for the oven to preheat for out of the freaking freezer that is total freaking chemical-based garbage. So the biggest thing I think a meat-based diet does, if we're talking actual meat, like you look at it and it's meat. It doesn't come in a package or a box. It's real meat. There's not a lot of work 
and cooking a piece of meat. Even if it's a tough piece of meat that needs to cook a long time to be tenderized, salt and pepper, throw it in a crock pot, set it on low, and eat that night. You want to, I need something on the side, Jack. Make a freaking salad, a, a greens-based salad. Throw a few peppers and tomatoes and pe uh, cucumbers in it, just a little handful. And that'll be like your grazing you would have done that day, preferably grown in your garden, if not your neighbor's garden, if not from the farmer's market or down the road. So it just makes eating healthy easy and fast. I defy you to make the average meal that the average family makes for their kids, and then they eat it too because, well, the kids only eat chicken nuggets that are made out of a spinny device, right, a, a freaking centrifuge. To make that any quicker in any meaningful way than I make a couple steaks at night when my wife and I eat steak. Defy you. Number two. We do need to put carbon in the soil. No, I haven't gone full nuts with the AGW stuff. I have always said that we need to put carbon in our soil because it's called a carbon cycle, and everything is better when there's carbon in our soil, including the life in the soil itself. Carbon belongs in the soil. If we're going to have a meat-based diet, that doesn't mean CAFOs because that's a chemical-based diet. CAFOs are chemical factories. I don't want CAFOs. I want to graze ruminants everywhere that makes sense. And we can do things with pasture poultry and all too, but main thing we need to do is graze ruminants and pasture pork to feed the country if we're going to do it with a meat-based diet. That will result in the creation of hundreds and thousands of savanna mimic ecosystems. Okay including many that are now wheat fields, corn fields, growing seed oils and other garbage that should be classified as industrial waste, not human food. And those current operations that are just being plowed and replanted and dumped with chemicals are causing all kinds of environmental problems that I'm not really going to go into today. I just want to talk about carbon in soil. Growing a field of corn puts almost no net gain of carbon in the soil, especially when you're doing it with all chemicals and a biocide cocktail. Conversely, grazing systems that are tree-lined so that the animals don't die in the heat like just happened recently, okay, produces all of the production of the trees. That can be fruit, that can be mast for the animals themselves, that can be fuels, that can be like charcoal-based fuels, that can be timber that's used to, grow, to build shit. I don't care what it is, but tree-lined open grazing paddock rotational systems will put more carbon in the soil than anything else humans do intentionally to an ecosystem, including leaving it alone and doing nothing. Our country used to be covered in megafauna. We did not hunt them into extinction. If you drive across open parts of the United States and you think about early man in North America killing all of the mastodons and all of the mammoths and the camels and the horses with atlatls and spears, it will sound like the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard. We had a catechism. Most people think now, even though the people that originally postulated it think it was due to a, uh, an asteroid or comet impact that happened somewhere around Greenland right at the end of the Younger Dryas. And this system was saved because the bison survived. And the most fertile land in the country is what? The Great Plains. Texas up in the Canada. Where did the bison primarily live? The roaming ruminants made that system what it was. 
That's why when settlers got here, they couldn't believe how deep the topsoil was. And they thought, I know, we'll farm the shit out of it. Yeah. Where the Indians did what? They ate the buffalo. That's why we killed the buffalo to get rid of the Indians. So, yeah, you want carbon in the soil? You want ruminants. And I defy you scientifically to prove me wrong that it's not the best thing we can do to put carbon in soil. So if you're like me and you just want an environmentally friendly food system that requires carbon in the soil and remineralizing our soils, and we need carbon in the soil to remineralize the soils. I don't care if the minerals are there. If we don't have the life web, the minerals can't get into the grasses for the buffalo to eat or in your lettuce food for you to eat if you're a vegan. If we need that, then this is what we need. And I defy you with science to prove otherwise. Don't tell me your opinion. Don't tell me some guy said something. Show me biochemically where I'm wrong. Go ahead. Next, we need to reduce runoff into our oceans and rivers. I don't think anybody but an absolute freaking idiot would disagree with that. If you look at the fact that we have a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico where the Mississippi River Delta washes out every year that is now larger than the state of Rhode Island, I know it's not a big state, but it's a big-ass dead zone, and it happens every year. And we know it's from runoff into our rivers that some causes it. It's not like God just said, I hate this place. Let me lick my thumb and make a dead zone here. We know exactly how it happens. It's all the shit that runs off our farms, all the topsoil, all the nutrient load that ends up through that huge system of, of smaller rivers and tributaries and streams and creeks and ends up in that river and washes out into the ocean. We have similar problems in Florida. You know what stops runoff? Deep-rooted soils with lots of carbon in them and trees. Instead of fields being where we want to cultivate every square inch of the field, you have trees because we don't need to cultivate every square inch of the damn field. They're called riparian areas. So a ruminant-based savanna mimic system would almost shut down excess runoff, and it would also stop topsoil loss through wind, which also mostly lands in our water systems. So it fixes that problem. That problem, I'm not even going to say that it, it makes it better. No, if we did it right, it literally ends that problem full scale done. So if you oppose on environmental grounds a system based on ruminants and, uh, and, and, and paddock based grazing and savanna mimic, then you oppose cleaning our oceans. Sorry. That's the science. I don't give a flying shit if you don't agree. I don't care what religious affiliation you have with a cow. I don't care. This is, this is not about your feelings. This is about facts. Next is we do need to feed over 300 million people in the United States. And right now we are feeding them on industrial waste. If you, I, I want you to just look at what's the energy cost of the extraction of high fructose corn syrup from corn. That's literally in every piece of food that America seems to eat out of the center of a grocery store today, which is the vast majority of their calories. There is no way it could exist without massive government subsidy. It should be one of the most expensive products we could make. Instead, it's one of the cheapest products uh, that, that anybody can use in the production of so-called food. We are eating oils from things that don't, don't make any sense. We're getting fat from things like rapeseed, a.k.a. canola. It is a toxic substance. If you're eating food with cottonseed oil in it, I encourage you to go look at what raw cottonseed oil looks like and ask yourself if that really belongs in your body. 
So we need to feed people highly nutritious food. And all this stuff about, well, we need these supplements and, and this mineral and that mineral. If you're eating ruminants that graze on highly productive systems, you're deficient in absolutely nothing. Especially if you're eating at least a little bit here and there of organ meats as well. You can live, you can live on nothing but cow. I'm not going to do it. I like some variety in my life. But if I said from now on, Jake Robinson in the chat right here, you have to live on cow. You can live on any part of the cow that you want. I'll let you have butter and cream, but you don't get milk. That's all you can have liver, you can have kidney, you can have spleen. If you, if you want it, you can eat the butthole. You can eat the ears, the eyeballs, you can grind up the bones. I don't care what you do, but you can live on cow and cow alone. That's all you get and you can live on cow. Jake Robinson would become the healthiest man you ever met for his age. He won't do it. He says he'll do it, but I don't believe him, right? Because if he were to do it, he'd done it already. Jake could get in shape. And Jake would be deficient in nothing except maybe, possibly, maybe vitamin D if he doesn't get outside enough, if we lock him in the dark. Okay, what else will do that? Give me a food you think we're supposed to live on that you think will do that. It doesn't come from something with a face. If you try to live on corn, if I say, okay, you got to pick one thing, well, I'll eat beans, rice, and corn. You will stay alive. I think it's a shitty diet, but you will stay alive. You will get enough of an essential protein, amino acid mix. You'll stay alive. Pick one of them, and you will fucking die. If you if I feed you nothing but rice, eventually you will get sick and you will die. Now, I know you don't have to only eat rice. I'm making a point here. I can keep you alive and healthy and de de no nutrient deficiency without one pill going in your mouth unless you have some sort of Thing that we need to fix because you're genetically messed up. And there ain't nothing else that does that other than me. You can disagree, but that means that we can take this system, feed the entire country, destroy the entire concept of type 2 diabetes, by the way, while we're doing it, and have healthier, happy people. And it actually, when people say meat's expensive, that's because we're doing it wrong. That's because we're doing it wrong. We're growing corn in Nebraska to bring the feed a cow for the last six miserable weeks of its life in a CAFO in freaking Lubbock, Texas. That is not what I'm talking about. That cow needs to stay on that grass for another six months. But you know what his feed bill is? Zero. Zero, if you do it right. So we can feed the planet because most of our land masses in the world are not suitable for agriculture but they are suitable for this type of horticulture in combination with animal husbandry. And no, it will not raise the temperature of the freaking planet, but I'm not going to get into that today. Next, we need to decentralize food production and processing. Now, if you're going to try to grow enough corn, beans, and rice to live on right here where I live near Fort Worth, Texas, it ain't going to happen. It is not going to happen, but I can grow. Maybe my land is not perfect, but land is down the street. There's a guy that does it with cattle right now. He, he lives a mile away from me. 
I can do it in Pennsylvania. I can do it in Nebraska where they're growing the corn. I can do it in Florida where they grow oranges. I can do it in California. I can do it up in Alaska for God's sakes. I might be, you know, like domesticating musk ox instead of doing longhorns from Texas, but I can run a ruminant based system in almost every part of the world. And places that have no grass, if I do it right, it will literally cause grass and trees and rainfall. It solves all our problems. So why do you think they have literally declared war on it? Because where did I start out with this other than, you know, killing all of you on your prepper compounds with a little bit of intel and some long-range rifles? The Great Reset, the Great Awakening, and government needing like an organism to grow. If an entity that exists specifically for the purpose of solving problems actually solves the problems, what happens to the entity? Let's say you're having a recurring problem in your car and you're going back and your mechanic is fixing the problem every three months. But it's not a permanent fix. Or that's your doctor and he's fixing your illness every three months, right? Putting you on maintenance medications or whatever. But this is a car. Let me give you a simple mechanical. I'm not saying the mechanic is uh, evil or nefarious anyway, but when are you going to stop taking your car back to the mechanic when it stops breaking? So imagine that we start Jack's Automobiles. I go into business against Elon Musk and Tesla and Ford and everybody. And I invent the Jackmobile. The Jackmobile has such efficient solar charging technology that it charges itself up as it goes, and it never breaks down. You don't need fuel. Now, this doesn't really exist. I'm, I'm making an analogy to help you understand this. It, it, it powers itself, and it doesn't break. How many car dealerships, mechanic shops, etc., are going out of business? Eventually, all of them. Eventually, all of them. When you actually solve a problem in a permanent manner, the support mechanism for the problem itself dies. Government can't actually solve problems because it ends the need for government, and government, like any, any organism, seeks to survive, continue to exist. And bureaucrats are incredibly good at finding out ways to justify their existence. So that's where we're at. That's why they won't solve it. And that's why they actually see things that actually would solve problems as the biggest problem of all. I know that sounds tin hat, but it's not. And I, I defy anybody with logic and reason to prove otherwise. I've got a few things here I starred so we can wrap up. Um, John Lynn says, Jack, you're a jerk. I used a beer lure to get five loaves of mulch from the electric transmission line limb trimmers. Yeah, it's the only way I've been able to do it. And I've got like 40 yards of wood chips right now, guys. And if you're not getting what John's laying down, let me explain to you what, what he means. He means you go find the guys that are cutting down tree branches and throwing them in a great big commercial uh, chipper shredders. And they have these huge trucks carry like 12, some of them carry 12 yards or more of chips. And you say, hey, I live right over there. You can go dump it there. And some of them are like, yeah, we'll help you out. And they go do it. There's a lot of them, though. They're being paid to drive that truck, and they're paid until they pull that truck into its final resting place at the end of the day and put it in park. Okay? 
And you're like, well, you're paying to dump it. And if the guy you're talking to, like, runs the company, it's like a small business, he's like, you're damn right I do. I'll dump that shit there. When you're looking at, you know, like, the truck says a Splenda on it or something like that, right, a full company with employees and all, that employee, that foreman that's got a couple trucks running around and guys cutting for he doesn't give a shit because it's not his money. He's not on a bonus structure where they pay him to keep the cost down. He's paid by the hour. So his company already has a contract with a place where he dumps that truck at the end once it's full. And the company pays the bill and he doesn't give a shit. He gets paid to sit in line at the gate and wait to go dump it. But what I found is when I'm like, well, what kind of beer do you drink? And they're like, well, what? And you're like, well, what kind of beer do you drink? You know, and it's it with with that group, it's usually Coors Light, Miller Light, Bud Light, right? And you're like, well, I'll tell you what, that truck looks like it's got about 20 yards of friggin' mulch in it, and that would cost me a significant amount of money. And if you offer them money, they I don't know what it is. They won't take it. Like, how about I get you and your guys like four 12 packs of beer, and I'll just leave it in the field, and whenever you want to dump it, you just dump it and take the beer. I'd say over half the time I've made that offer, it's worked, and it's weird. I think just something about being a working man in the sun like that, and somebody talking about, and I'll have, I'll tell, I'll have it in the cooler for you. Just don't take the cooler, man. All right, just like I'll have ice on it and everything, and you just, and I take the frozen bottles and put it on top of the 12 pack so it's not all wet, and and that way, you know, you buy it cold or you throw it in your refrigerator, you put it out there for them, they get it when they're ready. That's worked really well. Uh, GMA Merkel says, I'm fair in the kitchen and the motorcycle folks like my food. I trust them. I don't understand why you put that in all caps. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, Troy Lindsay says, getting rid of an act of Congress requires an act of God, which is a way of saying it requires another act of Congress. To get rid of the Federal Reserve today. No, I'd be like, well, the chairman of the Federal Reserve could for sure. The chairman of the Federal Reserve is nothing but a mouthpiece who does whatever he or she is told to do so by the members of the board of the Federal Reserve and not the ones you see the names of. You're talking about the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world, and the chairman is nothing but a mouthpiece that does what he or she is told. And so you would need the Congress of the United States to pass the Federal Reserve Act to pass an act that repeals the Federal Reserve, and you would need the President of the United States to sign it. And that's why it would require, in Troy's words, an act of God. Not really, but it might be easier to get God to act than that to happen because that would be incredibly difficult because of the consequences in the short term. And here's something that you need to understand about politicians and why they are never going to be your solution. They have no stomach for short-term pain, but they have an un, an unlimited willingness to accept your long-term pain. They're worried about just like corporates, corporations are today with earnings statements. Next quarter, they give a shit on election day and the things that are going to affect. If they can screw you over a hundred percent, but they know it's a thing that you'll be mad about 80 other things by the time November comes next year and they're two years out from an election, they'll do it. But if it's short term pain and it's leading up to them losing their job, they got no stomach for short term pain. And they're terrified of short-term pain because short-term pain pisses people off. And when I say short-term pain, I mean is the pain begins and gets to a serious pain point quickly. 
I don't mean duration. I mean, how long is it before I become aware of it and it gets really painful, like gas prices? That's why Brandon's numbers are in the shitter right now more than anything else. Supply lines and, and, and inflation and gas, which are all things that became acutely aware of. Short-term pain they don't like. Long-term erosion of your your value that just makes you a little simmering mad, they don't give a shit about. So they would have to take a lot of short-term pain for a long-term gain. And that's, you know, that's what you do when you go to the gym. That's what you do when you change your diet. That's when you give up bad habits. Short-term pain, long-term gain. You're looking for Congress to do that. Good luck. Uh, KJR4, KJ4RMZ, death fertilizer and urea shortage, real or made, is going to screw us soon. It is real and made. It is real and made. It's real, and we made it happen by the way that we have handled this shit with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Chuchan Mix says, I have always thought it was quaint that government still says cannabis, for example, is a controlled substance. What the hell is not a controlled substance today? You're talking about regulatory issues there. And the, the goal of, of, of government is to make everything government controlled and regulated. Everything. The goal of government is to license every action. That way they can control it and they can plan for it. I know that sounds crazy, but it is. And they've, if you listen closely, they'll tell you the truth and all you have to do is believe they are who they say they are. K-Bonk says, I sometimes think the smell test is the only way to go to know food is bad. Best by dating is, a, best by dating is a problem. I agree. Like, and then here's my other problem. Food is supposed to spoil. Like, unless we're talking like really properly dehydrated will last long time, you know, pickled and refrigerated will last a long time. But in the end, like food is supposed to spoil. I'm actually more concerned about food that doesn't spoil. Like Twinkies. You see how long a Twinkie lasts? Do you, do you really, you know, here's a good show for you guys to look up. Adam Eats the 80s. This is a dude named, named Adam Richmond. He's a, a food guy, right? This competitive eating and shit like that. They have this new show out, and it's kind of cool if you're an 80s kid like me, right? Because you see all this shit from the 80s, but they go back to the 80s. And sometimes, like, he did one on California Pizza Kitchen, and the guy that actually founded it is still alive, and he made him, like, one of the original California Pizza Kitchen pizzas that they don't make anymore. But it was new. But he'll find collectors that have, like, a can of Jolt Cola or a candy or something like that that's from the 80s. And then I just put up a disclaimer about how it could be dangerous. He'll eat that shit. And sometimes, like, that is awful. But he doesn't die. But a lot of – or they'll say there's no flavor. A lot of times he's like, that tastes like I remember it. Folks, I'm more worried about that food than my food going bad. I'll know when my food's bad. It, remember Super Size Me? The guy put the french fries and the burger or something like that in a jar, and it lasted for like six months. It didn't even mold. I, I don't want to eat things like that. Um, K-Bong says carbon is a great filter substance. It is. And there's also a, a certain level of bio lockup of toxins that we won't get into today because that's actually going to be on a show next week uh, that has to do with carbon but not just carbon. Uh, can you quickly go over hot pepper garlic oil recipe for at Ecomouse? No. Uh, what I'll do is say if you go to 
the website, it's on there, and I'll add it to the show notes because that's too long at this point for the show. But I will make sure that it is available for you, Eka Mouse, and thanks for asking on our behalf, Jake. Uh, but there is a page on my website that has how to make it and where you get the peppers to make it with, and it's not hard. K-Bonk says it's effing everywhere HF corn syrup. Yes. Yes, it is. And it is a toxin. It is a, a toxin to your liver and to your body. And you should not feed it to your children. And I don't care how many commercials they make about it pretending to care about you and tell you it's okay in moderation. No, it's not. It has no business in your body at all. Uh, Joan Wald, too, says rainwater harvesting question is first flush necessary. Depends on what it's coming off of and what you want to do with it and what you do with it before you do that. So if you have a metal roof and you have lots of solar exposure to it where it is getting baked all the time, it probably doesn't really matter. And if you're putting your water before you consume it through a Berkey, probably not. Um, if you are on an asphalt shingle roof with a lot of shade and a lot of swirls and stuff shitting on your roof, you really better should and should still filter it. And then there's also the thing like asphalt roof. One of the issues is not just the toxin problem. It's that if you've ever cleaned out gutters from an asphalt shingled roof, you know that when you clean the gutters out, there's leaves and crap like that. But there's always like this gritty, dirty, nasty shit in there. That's the pieces of the shingle wearing off. Well, that stuff clogs things. So and a lot of even with like screens and whatever, some little bits of it will get through. And eventually it creates a lot of sediment in the tank and clog up lines and stuff like that. So uh, first flush will help mitigate it. So depends on what you're doing and what you're collecting it off of. And Food Bear says Greg Judy had a great video. On goat stripping cedar bark, I got to get some of those goats. Yeah, the problem is they strip bark off everything. I love goats. I just want somebody else to take care of them. I think we're going to wrap up there. I'm looking real quick to see if there is anybody else that all capped me while I was doing that. Uh, I don't see it. K-Bonk says, beer lure, laugh out loud. It works. It's not just for slugs. It can get you wood chips and in large amounts. Remember, guys, if you like this show in the work of <laughs> Jake says, Twinkies, the cockroach of foods. It can't be killed. Um, yeah, to a degree. Um, anyway, guys, I really appreciate you guys uh, being with me today. I want to remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com to help me out. Uh, if you do that, you'll find my item of the day. You'll find all of the items I've ever reviewed. And remember, if I... If you see it at T-Spaz, I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it, or I wouldn't recommend that you do so. Today, I do have an item of the day for you that's just a little lifestyle thing. It's a really great one. It's the Cable Matters 6 Outlet Wall Mount Surge Protector. The big thing I like about this is it installs, like, you can screw it in the wall. You can remove the faceplate of the outlet if you want to. And there's a little hole in the middle. You can screw it in like you do a faceplate and hold it on there. Honestly, you can just pick it up and plug it into a, a, a double gang box outlet. And then you go from having two plugs on your outlet to having six plus two USB cords. And it just works great. And it sells for about 20 bucks. And it's like, I, I've had a bunch of different ones of these. This is the one I'm settled on is the best. It's on sale today for 50% off in the middle of supply shortage bullshit. It's on sale for like 10.99. And it is totally worth getting at that price. There's one thing I'll tell you about in this little gadget that you need to know about before you buy it. And if you read the negative reviews, they're all about it. Across the top of it, and those watching, you'll see like a little clear thing up there at the top. When you plug it in, and it's like, hello, I got power? 
there's a little light that comes up there. It is about as bright as your average, like, low-light nightlight. So if you were to plug one in like a big dummy right in your bedroom, right across from where you sleep, it might be annoying to you. But if you plugged it in the hallway where you had to go take a leak in the middle of the night and you didn't want to turn the light on and blind yourself and piss off your, your mate or your kids, then it would help you. So you should be strategic about where you put it because of that light. And if you didn't want the light at all, I'm sure you could put a little piece of painter tape over the top of it or paint it or whatever. But it is awesome. Uh, Mike Roth just gave me a $20 super chat, and he says, have a coffee with me this 4th. I'd love to, Mike. I'm not sure how I, virtually or whatever. Let me know, man. Send me an email if you mean something beyond that of just saying, like, enjoy some coffee with the 20 bucks. Uh, shoot me an email. Uh, but thank you, Mike, for the $20 super chat. Remember, you guys can always super chat me. You can tip me at tip live. There's a lot of ways you can help support us. But, I mean, one of the easiest, easiest ways, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Don't cost you nothing, and you get my quality reviews. With that, I'm going to wrap up. I will be back next week. I got a lot in store for you, but it'll be a short week, four-day week. I have a Bitcoin breakout episode coming on Tuesday. We have rebooked Natalie Brunell for Bitcoin breakout. I think it's the 7th of July, I think is right. So we have probably two Bitcoin breakouts next week, and we'll have uh, an expert panel show and probably another Outback with Jack. And then we'll be back to our regular schedule, and we'll finally get everything ironed out. Uh, for those of you that have been you know, I know some of you are going to love the Bitcoin breakout, some of you not, but a lot of you that are, you've been really excited about the fact that Natalie Burnell's coming. I think I got bumped for Michael Saylor. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I think she got an opportunity to interview Michael at the exact same time that I had her booked for. If I'm going to get bumped for anybody in that space, that would be who. Anyway, guys, I hope what I said today like, kind of hits you a little bit uh, between the eyes and in the heart. Uh, I, I don't want to see the reason I did the intro segment wasn't to just get more people to listen or views. Like I said, I know it's going to attract people. I just prefer not to even deal with. It's because I don't want you making poor decisions. We all only have so much time and so much money and so many resources. And if we're spending a million dollars of our life force to build a compound for a war that isn't coming, what have we lost? What have we lost? And so my message for you at the end of the day, it is July the 1st. Half the year is over. Tick-tock, tick-tock. The clock ticks for us all. There's no static in life. I've told you this for years. It's the truth. There's no static in life. You're either moving toward greater self-sufficiency, independence, liberty, wealth, more sustainability for your family and your family's future, or life and time are moving you in the other direction. You have to be proactive in this. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.